The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I recently heard the story of a couple who had a bird come into their house, which, you know, I've never had that happen to me, but I can imagine how that happens. You know, a bird got into their house and they just freaked out, totally panicked. They literally, I mean, they're, they're running out of the house for their lives. I mean, knocking tables over, like just furiously trying to get out of the house and into the front lawn. And I'm thinking, okay, that just sounds a little extreme. I mean, they just need to simmer down a little bit. It's just a bird, okay? I mean, if it was like a spider, I understand. But okay, but a, a bird, okay, that's a little crazy. I mean, just get like a net or a big sheet, okay, and just kind of like push it out, okay? And I kind of had this attitude about like, okay, they're, they're, that, that's a little weird. And that was kind of my, my first quick judgment on it. But then I heard a little more about this story. You see, actually the story got international attention, news coverage all over the world because of this story, and it it helps to know what kind of bird it was that entered into their house. Um, Here's the bird that wandered into their house right here. Yeah. That's called a cassowary, and you may or may not be able to tell by that, um, that picture there, but they're about the same size as an emu, so they, they can stand up to like six feet tall, okay? And they've got that freaky like dinosaur horn on the top of their head. And they're known to be the most dangerous bird on the planet. Here's the background on this bird and how, why you don't want to men- mess with them. You can't see because it's in the grass, but their claws... They have four to five inch talons on the end that are like razor sharp daggers that can really mess you up. And they, they, what they do is they jump kick you. Someone's really upset just at the thought of it back there, okay? They, I feel like crying myself, okay? They can jump kick you. They have, their kick has one of the strongest forces of any other animal on the planet, And they will run at you, jump. They can jump seven feet into the air. And they will jump, they will kick you with both of their feet at the same time. So you say, okay, where are these birds? They're not in South Florida, right? Okay, these birds, uh, there's actually one at Jungle Island in South Florida you can go see. It's amazing. Um, But they are actually in uh, Australia, New Zealand, that area. And you say, okay, if I'm ever visiting and I come into uh, encounter uh, a cassowary, um, what should I do? Should I run? That would be a bad idea. The cassowary not only can jump seven feet in the air, it can run at 30 miles per hour. You say, okay, is that like really fast? Can I outrun uh, that? Can I run faster than that? Well, let me put it in perspective. Usain Bolt, greatest runner probably in all time, he was clocked at 28 miles per hour. So if you can run faster than that, there's a city in Brazil that you need to go to like today, okay? You just need to get there. There's a little thing going on you want to know about, okay? You cannot outrun that. It will jump kick you and then just rip you 
to, to shreds. Okay, so you can imagine if this happens to you, okay? Anytime now. There's another picture you need to see. If that happens to you, you can imagine that you might turn some tables over and run for your life. Now, why do they have a picture of this? Because actually, as the story goes, the uh, couple, as the wife was running out for her life on the front lawn, she said to her husband, make sure you take a picture. <laughs> Not sure I would have done that or what her intentions were there. But anyway, um, so that got national news. Now, I realized, okay, I made a quick judgment about this couple. Okay, if that bird was in my house, I would probably do the same thing. Okay, but that is a dynamic that we do all the time in our life. I mean, we make quick judgments about people all the time, don't we? All the time, we make quick judgments. And you've experienced someone being judgmental to you before. Maybe it's that family member that you can just tell it's nothing they're saying, it's just the way they're acting, they're being judgmental. It's that person at work, maybe it's the person at work that sees you as being judgmental on them, that doesn't go well for that relationship, does it? Maybe you had a, a friend group and you're all friends and then all of a sudden this one issue rose and then one group of them started to being, being judgmental against the other group, that fractured that friend group, didn't it? See, what happens, being judgmental, that breaks relationships and, but it's, and maybe you've experienced that a couple times, but it's even more common than that. Even though we are sometimes have that break our relationships, sometimes we have the social ability to keep it under the surface. We're still making those quick judgments on, about people and about the people around us, but maybe we just have the social ability to play it off and, and not let people know that that's coming, that that's in our heart. But it doesn't mean it's any less harmless any less harmful. In fact, actually what it's doing on the inside to us, that kind of judgmental attitude, that self-righteousness, what that's doing on the inside is so much worse than what it's doing on the outside to that relationship. It's a poison. We're going to look at an encounter that someone has with Jesus, and this encounter just lays this issue out and breaks it apart and helps us understand this issue. It's very instructive for us. So we're going to be looking in this book. It's called Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament in the Bible. Um, it's going to also be up here on the screens. It's in your bulletin if you have a listening guide. Matthew, it's chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 9. And it goes like this. <clears throat> he went on from there and entered their synagogue. It's talking about Jesus entering the synagogue in Capernaum, a town that he spent quite a bit of time in. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. All right, now here's the, the setting here. Jesus walks in, he's in Capernaum, walks into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. What does that mean? That means his hand is, is lifeless. It's, you know, maybe it's, it's curled up like this, okay? He's just, he's lost use of the hand. Maybe it's been like that all of his life, but it's maybe it's probably curled up like this. He's lost use of his hand. And he's in there minding his own business, probably just trying to uh, attend the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath. 
And it says, and they ask him, who's they? If we had read a little farther before this, we'd know that he's been in a discussion with the Pharisees. He walks into the synagogue. The Pharisees enter in the synagogue with him, and they, they ask him this question. Now, to understand the background here, we've got to know a little bit about this group of people, the, the Pharisees. This group is, they're like the elite religious leaders of the day. They are known for meticulously spending their lives trying to follow God's law to Israel as perfectly as they possibly can. So in other words, let me give you an idea. Like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. These kind of commands, they'll take those and they'll say, okay, but what does it really mean not to tell a lie. Like, how do you know that it becomes a liar? How do you know that it's stealing? Like, I don't want any gray area. And so they would take, create all of these rules specifically defining so they can follow this law down to the letter. And you've got to admire, I mean, somewhere in there is a desire to just be holy before God. Like, it's probably started with a pure desire, but somewhere along the line, it goes very wrong. Like, let me give you an example. This issue of the Sabbath was a huge debate. So here's how this works out. What's the Sabbath? Well, God said in the Ten Commandments, he said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And it goes on to say that uh, the Israel should not work on the Sabbath because it's a day of worship for God. So here's how it would work. Seven, in the seven days of the week, the first six days, all the days are worship, but the first six days, they're to worship God through their daily activity and their work. You know, whatever they're doing, they're doing it with their, to their best of their ability for God or doing it out of thanksgiving to God. They're doing it to the glory of God. Everything is worship. But God said, I want you to save that one day and, and cease from all work and just rest and set it aside to worship me through your rest. This was so important to God because in order to stop working, they had to release control. So it's an act of faith in God's provision for them. And so they were called to rest one day a week on that Sabbath and to worship God through that rest. And actually, God said, if you break the Sabbath, if you work on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, in Israel, if you broke the Sabbath, it was a capital offense punishable by death because it was, it was a disrespect to God. So the Pharisees and, and the, all the rabbis had many discussions. Well, what does it actually mean to work on the Sabbath? Like, when does it go from rest to work, And so you actually can see these ancient debates between rabbis about what work included. And they were so meticulous. In fact, they have discussions about when you're tying a knot, some knots are easier to tie than others. So at what point does knot tying get so laborious that it's no longer rest? And they debated this. So some rabbis said, well, this knot is easy. So that you can tie that knot. But you can't tie this knot. It's, it's too much hard work to tie that knot. So you can't tie that knot. They'd say, okay, how much food can you carry with you if you leave your house? I mean, maybe you've been on a picnic before and you're the one who has to carry the picnic basket. I mean, those things can get pretty heavy. I mean, that's work. So at what point does carrying food outside of your house become work? And so they, they said, okay, they came to the conclusion, if you're carrying food bigger than a dried fig, 
that constitutes work. So don't carry food that's more than a dried fig. You say, I have no idea what a dried fig looks like. I got you covered. Here's a picture of a dried fig. See, we take care of you here at West Pines. You have a dried fig right there. If you're carrying food larger than one of those dried figs, the rabbis would say, the tradition would say, nope, that's too much work. Don't do it. So they have all these, these rules. They're adding into the law. God never said anything about dried figs or knots. Didn't say all that. It, it was, it was, there was more to it than that. They're just making it down into these tiny little details. So one of the issues that would come up is, well, what do you do about healing someone on the Sabbath? I mean, it takes work to help someone who's physically ailing. Like, when does that become work? What do you do? That's a sticky situation. And the conclusion that these rabbis and, and these, these pharisaical groups, they came to the conclusion that pretty much if it's not a life or death situation, let them suffer and help them tomorrow. Now you say, wow, how could they come to that conclusion? What well, helps us understand something about the Pharisees and about their self-righteousness. See, they, they, they started with a good premise, how do I be holy before God? But then it became self-righteous. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is I, am, I want to work so hard and, and from my own effort be right, be right before God, have the right way of living, make the right decisions, have the right beliefs, have the right opinions. I want to be right. And, and in a non, it's, it can be non-religious too. I want my life, I want to prove that my life and my path and my career path, my relationship decisions, I'm going to prove from my life on my own strength that I am right. And it's this desire to prove on my own that I'm righteous, that I've made the right decisions, that, that I am correct, and to justify my life. But notice what self-righteousness will inevitably do. It will inevitably make me selfish and self-absorbed. I'm so concerned with justifying my life that I become so, I, I'm so concerned about myself. So a law like, well, don't pollute yourself by helping a hurting person. Help them tomorrow seems natural. Self-righteousness makes me selfish. But there's something else. They walk into the synagogue. The Pharisees see this man with the withered hand. And they think to themselves, this is perfect. This is just the kind of guy that Jesus is going to heal. I mean, he does these healings all the time. This is exactly who he's going to try and heal. So let's, let's draw Jesus into this debate. Hey, Jesus, I mean, look at this guy. I mean, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And, there, and it says, Matthew, remember the author of this book, he was a resident of Capernaum. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was almost certainly an eyewitness of this event. And he knew the inflection in the Pharisee's voice. He said they asked him that because they wanted to accuse him. They wanted to trap him. They say, okay, either way, no matter what he says or does, we'll, have, we'll own him. If he says, well, no, I'm not going to heal this man, then he looks bad and unsympathetic. But if he heals him, then he broke the Sabbath. We got him. They're trying to accuse him. And that shows us something else about self-righteousness. When I am self-righteous, there's something that always, always, always follows. It is inevitable. It will always be there. If I'm self-righteous trying to justify myself, it will change how I look at other people. 
Because if I'm trying to build a pedestal for me to get on, the fastest way to feel like I'm there is to, in my mind, knock the other people around me down a level. And if I can posture my own thinking about other people, my own perspective on other people, so that I am looking down at them, I feel better about myself and more justified. Self-righteousness, there's something that always follows after it, being judgmental. They're trying to take Jesus down. They want to knock him down a rung. They're trying to accuse him. They're threatened by him. They're jealous of his popularity. They're jealous of the fact that they can never debate him. They're trying to take him down. And it shows us what self-righteousness can do. It will make us judgmental. So how is Jesus going to respond? Verse 11. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. All right, now this is, you know, just don't mess with Jesus, okay? This is, he just takes them apart here. Okay, if you have the Pharisees, they are, the, they are close to the most rigid group in all of Israel. They're the most, one of the most legalistic groups, rigidly following the law, self-righteous groups. But there may be one group that's a little more self-righteous and a little more judgmental than the Pharisees. And it's this little group that, all, that lived together out in the wilderness. They were called the Qumran community. And they were even a little bit more rigid than the Pharisees. And so they were even more so picking apart what does it look like to, to break the Sabbath. And one of their laws that was known was that even if your animal, your sheep, your livestock falls into a pit, you leave it there, hope it does okay, and come back and get it in the morning. And so Jesus knows. I mean, the Pharisees, they know all these different views. And so Jesus says, which of you would get your own sheep out of the pit. And you you can tell that Jesus is expecting the Pharisees to not. And so what you have here is Jesus is calling out one issue that the Pharisees would say is too extreme. So saying, which of you would take your own sheep out of a pit? And you get the Pharisees like, oh yeah, we're not like those Qumran weirdos. I mean, we would get our sheep out of the pit. Of course we would do that. I mean, we're not crazy. So they're all nodding. And then he says, So isn't a sheep less valuable than a human? And he's just in like two sentences exposed all their hypocrisy. That here there would say, well, yeah, we'd get our sheep, but they'd say, but I'm not going to heal someone unless it's life or death. But you'd get your sheep out of a pit? Now, why would they get a sheep? I mean, what's the issue? Why would they get a sheep out out of the pit? Okay, understand the relationship with animals. Most of us... City folk, when we think of the relationship from humans to animals, it's our pets. And some of us really love our pets. I mean, really love our pets, okay? Some of you, we've seen the pictures on social media, okay? They've got, I mean, once it's got like human clothes on, okay, we've gone to a level. Some of you have your pets in human clothes, okay? 
And in some of you, on the other hand, you're married to the person that puts the pets in human clothes. And you'd actually like to throw that pet into a pit, okay? So you can relate to the debate here. Okay, we always think about animals. We tend to think about animals in terms of, oh, our poor animal. It's our family member. You know, we, we think of like pet relationship. But if you're from an agrarian society, and maybe you've, you've grown up into a situation like that. You grew up near a farming community. If you're in an agrarian society, animals are not just pets. What are they? They're money. Your sheep falls into a pit. You're not saying poor sheep. You're saying poor retirement account. Isn't it interesting that in the framework of the Pharisee, it's okay to get a sheep, but not okay to say it to help a human that's hurting. From the outside looking in, it seems completely illogical, but when we understand that self-righteousness makes us selfish, you can see how from that logic it would work itself out like that. Jesus completely exposes their hypocrisy in two sentences. Now look what happens next. It gets better. Verse 13. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored like the other. But the Pharisees went out, conspired against him how to destroy him. Did you see this? I mean, you could not write the script any better. Jesus, like, thoroughly just turned their logic into a knot, and he's basically proven to them, of course it's okay to heal someone on the Sabbath. What's wrong with you? And they have nothing to say. And we're half expected saying, half expecting Jesus to be like, of course you can heal on the Sabbath. Let's heal this guy. I mean, get doctors over here. Let's start praying and fasting. And he's sweating. And he's like holding the man's hand and maybe massaging his hand and working life back into it. Or maybe he's praying for him. He's got his hand on his head. And he says, well, let's actually, let's show you. Let's go to work in your face, Pharisees. We're going to go to work and heal this guy. Is that what he does? No. He goes, of course you can heal on the Sabbath. Of course it's okay to work on the Sabbath. Stretch out your hand. He didn't even lift a finger. He didn't break a sweat. He said, of course you can heal. Of course you can work and heal someone. And he's going to heal him without working. Do you see this? They have nowhere to go. He says less words on the Sabbath to heal this guy than the amount of words they had to work to formulate to ask him about it. They worked harder to ask the question than he did to heal him. He didn't even say, I heal you. He didn't even give him that. He didn't say, let me pray for you. God, would you please heal this man? He didn't even say that. He just said, stretch out your arm. I mean, no one's going to say stretching out your arm is work. I mean, Pharisees aren't walking around like this all day. I mean, they know you can at least do that, okay? They know you can do that. What does Jesus say? He says, stretch out your arm. And here's this man, his hand, maybe like a claw, like this, next to him. And all of a sudden, he stretches out his hand, and life goes into his hand. He looks down. He's got two perfectly healed working hands. Can you imagine seeing that? 
I mean, if you're not like totally terrified, like you are jumping up and down rejoicing. I mean, that'd be incredible. Can you imagine? I mean, what happens as you're watching that hand? I mean, do you see it rippling under the skin as muscle fibers are weaving together again? No longer atrophied? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? I mean, we don't know what, don't you wish we knew what happens next? I mean, what did this man do? Is he just can't say anything. He's just looking at his hand that's never worked and he's, he's flexing it and, and everyone around him is shouting and laughing but he's just stunned. I mean, his tears streaming down his face. Did his, maybe he has a son. Did his son go up and is, is holding his dad's hand and kissing his hand? He's never had his, his father's hand on his shoulder before. Does his wife come up and, and hug him and kiss him? Is the man thinking about how he used to have a job that he can't do anymore and now he can do it with both of his hands? I mean, are his friends coming up shaking that hand that they've never sh- shaken before? I mean, what is happening? This is... <laughs> incredible moment. I mean, talk about a day at the synagogue. I mean, that's a pretty good day at the synagogue that day. I mean, this man's life was given back to him. And what's the response of the Pharisees? They step back and they say, wow, Jesus, you got us. That's impressive. I mean, I never thought about that whole hypocrisy thing, but you're right. I mean, a human is more important. And you know, and then you showed us up. I mean, you healed the guy. I mean, I'm happy for that. I've known this guy for a while. I'm happy for him. Like, he's right. Let's just, we need to start following Jesus now. Look at him. He's obviously a powerful guy and very smart. No, that's not what they do. One of the biographers says they were furious. How dare you heal that man? They're mad. Everyone else is rejoicing. They're furious. You realize how absurd this is? I want you to think about how much this man's life is changed by now having two working hands. Do you think about how much harder it would be to go through life with only one working hand. Can you think about how difficult that would be and how much labor Jesus has saved him the rest of his life by giving him two working hands? Can you imagine that? Do you realize what Jesus just gave him? He gave him Sabbath every day. And they're mad thinking he broke the Sabbath. Do you see how backwards that is? I mean, think about this. What what Matthew actually says is they leave conspiring together to destroy him. Think about how absurd that is. This, this man has the, has the ability to restore destroyed things to life and they think they can destroy him. Good luck with that. What could, I mean, why are their hearts so unbelievably hardened? They leave mad? He's a giver of life. Here's the process. We learn something about self-righteousness. I'm working so hard to prove myself that I am right, justified. It makes me selfish and it makes me judgmental. I'm looking down at other people and that will inevitably lead me to something else. As I'm looking down from my pedestal at other people who are clearly not as right as I am, it will expel from me all capacity for mercy. 
If I'm constantly trying to get on my pedestal to be critical and look down on you, and well, you wouldn't be there if you didn't make that decision, and if you would, did what I told you, you wouldn't be suffering there. And, and, why don't you, and if I'm constantly looking down, well, that they get what they deserve, and I'm looking down, I'm all constantly judging the people around me. Well, I can't believe they live like that. Did you know they live like that? And, and they should live more like, why don't they do what I do? And I'm constantly looking down. If I'm tr- constantly looking down from that perspective, I am unable to get down and see life from their perspective. Being judgmental leaves me incapable of mercy. And here's why that self-righteousness is a poison inside. Because it's diametrically opposed. It is the polar opposite of the gospel. What Jesus came to say, as humbling as it is to hear, is you and I will never be right enough to get God's approval. Holy enough to earn heaven. We need to stop and realize I am desperately in need of your mercy, Jesus. And the desire of self-righteousness to prove myself is the exact opposite of receiving the mercy of God. You know the painful thing about self-righteousness is is if uh, we were ever to hear a sermon on self-righteousness, it's hard to see self-righteousness in yourself. Why? Because self-righteousness proves to yourself that you're on a pedestal. So when, you know, hypothetically, if we were ever to hear a sermon on self-righteousness, we would be thinking about that self-righteous person that we know. Rather than stopping and saying, okay, wait a minute, I am, that is proving that I'm self-righteous. Because I'm self-righteously thinking of someone who's self-righteous. So how do I know? I mean, help me. What's the, how do I know where their self-righteousness is in, in my heart? Well, a great gauge for self-righteousness. If you can't have self-righteousness and mercy in the same heart, let's work backwards and let's see what my mercy meter is. And that will help me understand if I have self-righteousness in my heart. It's as it says in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you want to know what like, the, the real thing is? Your heart is broken for the needy. So what's my mercy meter? Because that will probably tell me what my self-righteousness is. Maybe we can think about it like this. Uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, John Bradford. And John Bradford was a, a, a famous preacher in the 16th century England. And he's well known because he was actually martyred in, in England. He stood for the truth. He preached the, tr- the truth in any church that he was in. He preached the truth. But they, they called him a heretic. They locked him up in the Tower of London. And then they burned him alive at the stake. And this guy, John Bradford, an incredible pillar for truth, he's mainly remembered for two quotes. And one of them is a quote from his last, it was pretty much his last words. He's tied to the stake. He's got wood all the way around him getting ready to, to light the wood fire underneath him and burn him alive. And there's a young man that's also being burned at the stake with him. And he turned to that man and in his final moments, he wanted to encourage him. And he said these words, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord 
this night. It's known that that for a quote is wrong throughout history is his final words and it says that he bravely faced his death without another word. But there's actually another quote that he's known for even more than that. It was while he was imprisoned in the Tower of London and he's in this cell with other preachers that are also being imprisoned for the same thing. And these, this is like the who's who of British clergy that have been locked up. I mean, this is like the holy prison cell, these guys. And you can imagine, I mean, what would be going through your mind? Like, I can't believe we're locked in here. We just stood for truth. I mean, do you realize how easily they could become self-righteous? Like, we're these martyrs. Look at us. We've, we just preach the truth, but we're in here, but God will smite them. I mean, we're the ones who are doing it right, but we're locked into this cell. I mean, you can imagine how easily they could have this martyr mentality and this self-righteousness creep up as they're trying to feel justified, even though the world has turned its back on them for standing for truth. But as the, the story goes, he was looking out the window and a group of common criminals, like thieves, people have been easy to say in their mind, well, they're the ones that deserve to be locked up, not us. And these common criminals are being led to the gallows. And John Bradford said this, there, but by the grace of God, go I. He says, if it wasn't for the grace of God, he turns to these other pastors and he, he's basically saying, look guys, if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd be the criminal. If it wasn't by the, the good that God's done in our lives, I mean, we'd be worse off than they are. Now let me ask you, is in the mercy meter in my heart, is that my perspective? When there's a hurting person, and we wait for them. They're always coming back. And they're always looking for, for me to be the shoulder to cry on. And they've always got the tears. And they come back. And once again, their life is broken. And I'm so tired of all the time I've given them to support them. And I'm saying, man, and I just want to say, look, I, I'm mad. Why can't you just make right decisions? Why don't, if you did what I told you to do before, but yet you're back again, I've got to speak into your life again, and one, one more time we're going through this, I'm done, I can't do this with you. My mercy has run out. Or do I say, there but by the grace of God go I. Do I say, in my heart, if we traded lives, I'd probably be handling your situation with less grace than you are. I'd be worse off than you. Do I look at someone who I see, man, they're, they're impoverished relationally, maybe financially or, or spiritually, and I look at them, and do I, do I want to say, well, why can't you just do what I do? Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just, be, just go after it and work harder, and maybe it's just you're just not as disciplined as I am. Or do I say, you know what, if I traded places with you, and does that phrase ring in my brain, there but by the grace of God go I. Man, if we traded places, I'd probably be handling this with less grace than you are. So how can I help you? Because if I was in your shoes, I would be desperate for someone to help me. How about someone that's lonely? Do I say, you know what? This person is lonely. They need mercy. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to widen my friend group. And even though it's going to get us off our relational rhythm to, to have a new personality in, I'm going to widen and bring them in so that they can find community. I'm going to widen my friend group, my social network, my community group. We're going to make space to bring someone in. Why? Because there was once a time when I was lonely. 
and I wouldn't have a circle if someone didn't widen and invite me in. And so I know what it's like to be in your place and there but by the grace of God, the grace shown me by these people who welcomed me in, I wouldn't have friends and so of course I'm going to have mercy on you and bring you in. How about the person that needs forgiveness? Do you know the last stronghold that keeps me from being able to forgive is self-righteousness. When I say in my heart, you don't deserve forgiveness. I would never do that to somebody. Or do I say, there but by the grace of God go I. If we traded lives, I'd probably be a worse person. And I've been shown so much mercy. I can show you mercy. Where's our mercy meters? How much do I look and say, I need mercy? Do I have a lenses that, that say that phrase in every relationship that I see there, but by the grace of God go I? And does that break my heart? So how can I help? Where's my mercy meter? Because that's going to show me something far more dangerous lurking inside self-righteousness. That's a poison. You know, medical professionals have studied the crucifixion. And based on the archaeological evidence of crucifixion and the biblical evidence and historical evidence, and they look at crucifixion, they've studied it, and they've come up, they've discovered some very interesting things. For starters, um, when they would nail a prisoner's hands to the cross, most likely they would nail them probably more like around here in the wrist because then it could actually catch between the bones and actually hold someone's body on a cross. But one of the interesting things, if you drive a nail through this part of the arm, it will hit a nerve and will automatically disable the hand. And so on the cross, if someone is nailed to the cross, their hands would probably become like a claw. So I want you to rethink this miracle that Jesus did for a second. He took a man with a dead hand and he said, stretch it out. And it became alive. And what did Jesus do in his life? He stretched out his hands and they became dead. You and I are the man with the withered hand. We've received so much mercy. And the evidence of that is how much mercy we show. You know the most humbling thing about the gospel, about the message of Jesus that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again from the dead? The most humbling part of that is it's not just simply believing that there was a guy, a guy named Jesus who died on the cross, who was crucified. That's just historical. And maybe not even hard to believe like that was God in the flesh, it was the Son of God. You know, actually, I think the hardest part is admitting that I need it. I'm desperate for it. I'm hopeless without it. And maybe this morning you've been fighting and saying, no, I'm still trying to earn my way to heaven and be good and get God's approval. But today, stop and just receive his mercy. You cannot earn his forgiveness. You have to just be helpless and receive it. You needed his death on the cross and his resurrection to save you. So accept it today.
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. If you just want to receive God's forgiveness, just say this. Right there in your hearts between you and God, say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I need you to wash my sins away. Thank you for your death on the cross. I believe you did that for me. Thank you for your resurrection so that I can have my sins permanently washed clean. It's about what you did, not what I do. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.